Welcome to the BizWiz Podcast. I am Donna Garari, and in this podcast, I'll be joined by a team of researchers to explore two key questions. What are the visual challenges blind people encounter in their daily lives? And what are the technological advancements helping blind people to live more independently? We'll host conversations with people who are blind to learn about accessibility barriers they encounter, as well as with industry developers and researchers to learn how they are shaping the present and future of visual interpretation technology. If you would like transcripts and other related content, you can learn more at bizwiz.org. Check out the show notes for a link. So hello, and welcome to another panel discussion of the VizWiz Workshop. My name is Ed Cutrell, and I am a Senior Principal Research Manager at Microsoft Research, where I lead the MSR Ability Team. It's a group of researchers focused on innovating new technologies for people with a range of disabilities. Today's panel will be another multidisciplinary panel, where we bring together people from a diverse set of backgrounds to discuss the use and development of computer vision technologies to meet the interests and needs of people with vision impairments. So on the panel today, we have three amazing people. First, we have Daniel Kish, the president of World Access for the Blind, who has long served as an advocate for the development of new technologies that support the independence of blind people. He's the first totally blind person to be a legally certified orientation and mobility specialist and is a world leader in perceptual navigation and echolocation, using vocal clicks and echoes to identify his surroundings and to navigate through them. Next, I'd like to welcome Andrew Howard. Andrew is a senior staff software engineer at Google Research with a PhD in computer science from Columbia University. Andrew is probably most well-known for his work in mobile-friendly deep learning models. Starting with MobileNets, then continuing through V2, and then MobileNets V3, and also MNASNets. His work has been broadly adopted in deep learning packages like PyTorch and TensorFlow, as well as across a host of mobile platforms and apps. And finally, we have Will Butler, who's the Chief Experience Officer at Be My Eyes, a free app with an enormous online community that supports visually impaired individuals to get free, on-demand, live video support from around 4 million volunteers and companies. These remote visual assistants help users interpret their visual surroundings and overcome accessibility barriers. Will has also written numerous motivational articles about his journey with vision impairments and hosted two podcasts on the topic of vision loss and accessibilities. So welcome all. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. So with introductions completed, I'm excited to now dive into our panel discussion. So we're going to start with the first question here. So to begin our conversation today, I'm wondering if you could each share what has surprised you the most about progress that's taken place over the past 10 to 20 years around technologies that provide visual assistance to real-world users? So would you mind kicking this off, Will? Sure. Thanks, Ed. Uh, thanks so much for having us. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's it, uh, hindsight 2020 or whatever people say, you know, it's, it's in some respects, we've come so far. Like, uh, we used to have, as blind people, we used to have to pay hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for software that would recognize text on a page, right? And more or less, if you have a smart, if you have access to a smartphone, that, that OCR is completely free now. Um, on the other hand, uh, so, so I guess I'm surprised to the extent to which mainstream tech has embraced 
these sort of assistive tools um, and, and heartened by that. On the other hand, we don't have a lot of great data out floating around out there yet about what the real world challenges are for blind and low vision people. What are the experiences, the barriers, the brands that are designing things uh, that, that slow us down in our daily lives and prevent us from, from having an equal experience? So uh, I, that, that is also a little bit of a surprise. And you'd think we'd have a little bit of better grasp on the state of accessibility in the world right now. Great. All right, let's, let's move along then. How about you, Andrew? What do you think? Yeah, sure. So I'm coming a little more from a tech background, uh, so I can give some color on that. But I really like what you said there, uh, Will, in terms of really understanding how this technology can kind of be useful and really study, like, how can it be most beneficial? From the tech side, I mean, what was very surprising to me uh, was when basically deep learning kind of, you know, was the breakthrough technology. And, you know, I got very excited uh, to be involved in that. And, uh, you know, it just kind of keeps getting better and better. And, uh, you know, uh, year over year, uh, another task is basically being solved at a superhuman level. Uh, it's just kind of fascinating. So some of the actual applications of it, and again, my uh, expertise is a little more on efficient computer vision, is uh, at Google, we have a couple of uh, apps that people have worked on, one called Lookout to kind of help folks, um, you know, maybe navigate the world, understand the objects around them, things like that. And, you know, that uses a combination of on-device and uh, maybe server-side models to, to really assist folks. Uh, then we had a, a, another really nice kind of uh, demo app called Guideline, which uh, essentially assisted blind runners to, to run alone following a line. Obviously, there's a lot of caveats around that, but um, that was really inspiring. Uh, and I was really impressed that it worked. Although I shouldn't be given that this technology just kind of keeps going. So, you know, maybe those would be kind of the two big things. Uh, wow, deep learning is solving so many things. And now it's about how do we find the tasks that we need to solve that we can then apply to, to deep learning. And, you know, obviously this group is a great group to be working with for things like that. Thanks, Andrew. Daniel. Two things, two main things. One is uh, the cost of blind specific hardware has by and large remained really, really high. The very first Braille display uh, that came out in the 19, early 1980s, late 70s, the VersaBraille system from Telesensory Systems ran about $8,000. It was a tape drive. It was a 20 cell display. It had one kilobyte of working memory. And now the note takers are five grand, you know, so it really haven't dropped in price very much. The other is uh, the length of time that it has taken to really begin to embrace navigational technologies, depending on how you define that. It's only been in the last few years that GPS has become relatively easy to use, relatively blind friendly, relatively intuitive. There aren't really technologies out there that are convincing in the areas of facilitating navigation of the symbolic environment, the physical environment, and the social environment. So for whatever reason, AI or heuristics just seems to be having some difficulty, or it's people, people designing the, the technologies really seem to be having a difficult time uh, assessing and addressing uh, what the most pertinent navigational issues are and being able to address them. 
That's great. In fact, that leads us into the next question, I think, here. So I want to start with Andrew. And the, and the question here is, what do you see as the current limiting factor or barriers in developing better visual interpretation technologies? Okay, that's a probably pretty meaty topic. Uh, I'll start maybe by leaning into more on my background. Uh, you know, if I imagine a system that would, uh, you know, help folks uh, navigate the world, this seems like something that... Um, you would want in some ways always on or on a lot through the day. And so then that's just kind of power limitations. And so, you know, um, all of our kind of uh, heavy duty AI models, uh, they're, they're pretty power hungry. You know, a lot of my work is about how to reduce that. So that, that's definitely one part of the recipe. Obviously that's leaning more into my background, but you know, what, what I'm definitely hearing from both Daniel and Will is really understanding what the actual things that need to be solved you know, uh, what are the actual kind of, to use the phrase killer app, um, but what are the use cases that would be most important to solve? You know, that's always the most important thing for any project to, to, to like nail down. Absolutely. How about you, Daniel? What do you see as the current limiting factor barriers in developing better visual interpretation tech? I think part of it is uh, understanding what information is useful also providing a relatively transparent interface for the user to quickly and efficiently filter information uh, according to need, according to activity, according to circumstances. Um, that's part of it. I think. I think. I think there are a lot. I, I think. I think providing a, a hardware form factor, a hardware that's comfortable for people to use. I think training is huge. So. It's one thing to come out with the all-powerful widget. It's another thing to actually get people to the point where they can effectively, safely use that widget. Um, yeah, I, I mean, those are some of the <laughs> those are some of the barriers as I see them. Uh, that's, no, that's great. That's 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 really cool. So, uh, how about you, Will? Coming from your perspective, uh, we're at an interesting intersection because um, when you look at something like uh, Lookout that Google's developed, or or uh, seeing AI from Microsoft, it's, you have these 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 wonderful AI solutions for for sight. And then on the other side of the spectrum, with Be My Eyes, what we do is is entirely a human solution. We use entirely crowdsourced human sight. And I I don't think any of us on my team or the other those other teams would argue that one of those is going to solve all use cases. Um, and so I think we need to find a, a, a hybrid, uh, human in the loop, uh, human assisted learning models that, that are really effective. And then going back to this idea of, of, of scaling it up, basing the, the learning on inclusive data sets as opposed to ones that are more contrived. And, and I think, uh, also I'd, I'd put in a bid there for, um, for that magical wearable that um, that people can not only wear throughout the day without being, you know, uh, socially uh, ostracized, but also um, that they can afford. Uh, we're on like an endless quest at Be My Eyes to find the perfect um, wearable that's not only um, accessible from a from a design perspective, but financially accessible. To Daniel's Daniel's point, because we're we're kind of um, gone are the days where where we think um, 
putting uh, expensive, um, prohibitively expensive assistive technology on the market is is um, is acceptable. So, so uh, there's that. Those are some of the some of the things we think about on a daily basis. Oh, that's that's fantastic, and that actually leads directly into the next question, which actually I was going to ask you to maybe expand on. Will is that. I'm wondering if you can think, okay, so those are the the barriers that are developing the the visual interpretation technologies. But then the next question is, how do you envision technology will work in 10 years for interpreting visual information for real-world users? And what kinds of skills will the technology have? And and also, and I think specifically um, feeding back to what you were just talking about, how do you think that technology is going to deliver that information? Is it live video, augmented reality, some other kind of crazy, cool thing? What, what do you think? I think from our perspective, like I said this in, in another panel, actually, it, it, we would love to send all of our 4 million volunteers an email tomorrow saying, we don't need you anymore. We figured out all the tech, right? <laughs> um, but I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, and, and, and they can be a great you know, force for helping us develop that tech as well. So in 10 years, uh, you know, I think like, I think that our, our, our AI is going to help us. It's going to help connect us with the people that we want to connect with most. For instance, we, we offer specialized help in the Be My Eyes app. We can connect you to an expert at Google or Microsoft, but a lot of our users don't even know necessarily that 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 service is available. The awareness is low. So if your tech can can even do something as simple as recognize some logos, recognize like like we were saying earlier, the task at hand and say, hey, we can connect you with an expert, facilitate that deeper um, human connection. Uh, I think that would be a boon. I, I, I think uh, it's, of course, it's never the flying cars or the or the whatever the the thing is that we're that we imagine, but um, it, it, I think it can be more subtle. And and again, going back to this sort of like thinking in terms of like how can it facilitate the best possible hybrid experience is is what we're really interested in. That's great. Um, let's ask Daniel the same question. What what do you think in ten years um, the technology is going to be, and what will it do? I think. That will will crack access to the symbolic environment. So we'll 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 have developed a relatively seamless way of reviewing public signage, public markups, labels, things like that. Um, we're not there. It's still quite awkward, but I think we will be there. I think access to the social and physical environments will remain harder. Uh, it's hard for me to predict where that will be in ten years, uh, twenty years. Yeah, I think is more likely, um, but maybe not 10. Um, I think that GPS will, will uh, GPS and dead reckoning solutions may improve as well. So certain kinds of route planning, certain kinds of access to mapping technologies. Um, I think those things will improve markedly. Um, but I think the parsing and helping an AI to understand the nuances of the social environment, whereas, you know, many people struggle with that. Um, and the physical environment, yeah, that's more of a question mark for me. I, I want to just push on that a little bit and say, well, what do you think from a hardware perspective? Like, do you imagine these will be always on wearables? Do you imagine that you'll keep a puck in your pocket like you have the phone now? Or, or mm, It will be wearable. 
Um, there was another piece I wanted to say is I think that learning platforms will improve dramatically. So I think that there will be many more uh, opportunities for virtual learning, self-guided learning, um, DIY learning. I think the institutions of, of teaching blind people have uh, not really come through with, with the most efficient and impactful solutions. So I think, I think that the technology is moving in the direction of, of, of virtual systems, which are more likely to be, let's just say, desk-based or tabletop-based. But when you get into navigational solutions, they pretty much have to be wearable or, or there's no point. Oh, that's great. So, Andrew, as a, the technologist here on the panel, like, what do you see as to where technology is going to be in 10 years? And, and how do you think it's going to be delivered? Yeah, certainly, 10 years is a, a long time frame, obviously short on human history, but really long from technology perspective. Um, I think we definitely see a theme around AR becoming uh, more of a thing. So, you know, I can imagine technology knowing more about you and your context but also keeping that kind of private to you, not, not really a shared context. And the, so then you and your technology can kind of interact in a more seamless way. So one of the kind of um, aspects that's relevant for both uh, maybe this community, but even more broadly, is as you're interacting with your technology, you'd like it to uh, enhance your abilities. You'd like it to bring the attention, your attention to the information that you need when you need it and not kind of needlessly kind of spam you with different things. So to really accomplish that, it seems like you will need a kind of good understanding of the context and the user. Uh, and obviously that deep, you know, some of that uh, user context, you know, obviously you'd want to keep that very kind of private within the device. You know, that's, that's a really important theme. And so what might these devices look like? You know, certainly we can see the trajectory of kind of uh, wearable augmented reality types of things. You know, the cell phone form factor, the mobile phone, 10 years, that, that kind of feels like uh, that might be antiquated. So I, I guess those would be some of the thoughts. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. I want to dive a bit into the specifics of how to decide what information to include in, in visual interpretations. I mean, this is all associated with the you know, CVPR and computer vision. And I know we've struggled a lot with this on my team, and I've heard the same thing from colleagues. So I want to start with Daniel. And, um, and the, the question here is, like, for instance, if a blind person shares a picture of their shirt, should one describe the shirt's appearance, such as its colors and logos, or should one indicate whether the shirt's dirty? Or as another example, it can often be controversial on how to describe people. Should we try to ascribe gender, race, attributes about people's relative weight, uh, height, etc.? And I'm wondering if you could discuss a little bit about how you think we should decide what information to include when we provide a visual description. Daniel? That's a meaty topic because it is going to vary so much from situation to situation, activity to activity, environment to environment, and person to person. Uh, I, I, for example, have no desire for what I will call the, the social cue information. I don't care what clothes people are wearing. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what color their hair is. I don't care if their clothes are dirty or clean. I don't care what race they are or what they weigh. It matters 
nearly zero to me. Um, the information I'm interested in is strictly utilitarian. So physical environment information, uh, textual environment information, uh, which isn't to say that there aren't times when other kinds of information might be useful. And it's also not to say that I, I don't have an artist bent because I do. I actually am a creator. I'm, I am an artist. I am a musician. I am a writer. But for whatever reason, the social aspect just doesn't doesn't impact me. Whereas with other people, it really does. So I don't have a good answer for that to that question. But I think I think the solution is to somehow provide a relatively user scalable uh, a, a way for the user to scale the information they want and need according to who they are, where they are, and what they're doing. All righty then. So Will, maybe you could talk a little bit about your perspective on how Be My Eyes decides what to describe. Yeah, it's, inter it's interesting. And to double tap on your example, um, you know, I kind of tend to agree with Daniel as a blind person, but we help thousands of people every, every day, every week, you know, um, check their outfit and, and walk out the door with confidence in the morning. That's something that some folks really like to have is the knowledge that the shirt matches the tie or, um, you know, certain things that right now we're solving entirely with human vision and the, the, the blind user has to state with language the task in order to, to get it solved by the volunteer. So in that respect, again, an entirely human solution and, and targeting a task with language is 100% the most efficient way to, to, to do that. Um, the question is, how can, we, how can we create a model that, that learns uh, after one or two or three tries that I am usually asking about whether a tie matches a shirt? Um, or I'm usually asking about the color of my shoes. And I think it goes back to what Andrew's saying about, you know, we're going to have models that, that learn um, on the device and that don't, uh, you know, farm your data out to some algorithm somewhere, but, you know, know how to do this on device and, and, and figure out your preferences. Uh, I think that's entirely attainable. Uh, but it all comes back to having a really good international, you know, socioeconomically inclusive, multilingual data set. And I think, you know, we're working toward, toward that, but, but that's, uh, to me, that's the, that's the way you go about creating, uh, creating those really good models. So, so if I hear you right and, and sort of combine that together with what Daniel was suggesting, I think what you're suggesting is something that's deeply personalized models that are associated with what a given individual is really wanting for the context that may vary quite a bit. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, we have thousands and thousands of users and, uh, and, and they all use Be My Eyes differently. You know, they, they all have different priorities. It's not, it's, it's just, it's never the exact, exact same task from user to user, but each user has 
their patterns, right? Each user has the things that they care about. Um, so understanding this sort of fundamental truth that there are as many different types of blind people in the world as there are different types of people in the world is really, really important. And that the blind people are just as diverse and varied and complex and busy and nuanced and adventurous and complicated as every other human with 2020 eyesight. Well said. So, so Andrew, I mean, from, from your perspective, do you, do you have any observations about like what you include in visual descriptions or what you strive to include or want to? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of ways I can parse that. Uh, I think William Daniel brought a really good perspective uh, on this topic. Maybe I'll start first. We talked about maybe a future technology that could bring kind of um, the information you need when you need it, but we're not there. So one principle that I've kind of observed that's useful when designing an app to be useful for people today is empower the user to ask for what they want. So uh, make it kind of very easy for a user to basically get, say, the information that they want uh, that's relevant rather than trying to kind of guess it. You know, in the future, we may kind of be able to co-adapt and predict what people want. But at this point, the, the simplest thing is um, just let the users or at least make it easy to kind of uh, gracefully fail to and then at, uh, let the user specify if, if something's wrong. Now, in terms of specific signals, uh, you know, obviously things like OCR, which was mentioned earlier, I mean, that's a very strong model now, very much a commodity thing, uh, very useful. Um, you know, uh, AI does a good job at recognizing objects, although, you know, uh, there's long tails on objects, you know, so when we talk about these types of open world problems, um, you know, maybe there's many common objects, but, you know, there's kind of an infinite variety of objects in the world. And then, you know, there's various types of maybe human sensing type of uh, tasks. Like, you know, I would think being able to share kind of uh, affect, you know, the emotions of, of someone else. Although maybe that could also be sensed through kind of language, you know, how, how people are speaking. But no, these are some broad signals that could be useful um, and figuring out which are kind of the useful ones at the useful time. You know, long-term algorithms can, can potentially solve that short-term uh, empower the users to, to be able to ask. Excellent. So we've already heard a little bit about this from, from Will just a moment ago, but um, I think this is really core to, you know, the focus of the, the VizWiz workshop, which has to do with data. And, you know, in the modern world of, of AI, data is truly the, the unobtainium ultimate valued thing for, for making progress. And so I want to talk a little bit about the issues that are really critical for improving uh, vision assistant technology, which is access to large data sets from people with vision impairments that sort of support evaluation and training of computer vision tools. And so I'd like to start with you, Andrew, and I'm wondering if you could discuss your expectations about how these data sets can be built responsibly and also, if you have any experiences in building these kinds of data sets, what do you think we need for them? And, you know, just in general, any thoughts about, about data? Yeah, this is a, you know, this is the question, because, right? uh, you know, AI is all about uh, being driven by the data. So one distinction that I do like to make um, is the difference between training data and, say, test data or evaluation data. 
Because the test data and the evaluation data, that's kind of an opportunity to set a North Star. You can kind of embed the values you care about, uh, you know, inclusivity, diversity. Uh, you can try to you know, measure how models might do in different environments. And then you can try to either mirror your, your kind of test data with training data or try to figure out how to say use um, semi-supervised, unsupervised, self-supervised methods to, to kind of bootstrap. Because you know, there is kind of a theme going forward on how do we use less data to, to train models strong. And that's kind of maybe self-supervised paradigms. So that's kind of how we might point, say, a North Star for a, a community or a product. In terms of kind of engaging with academia, uh, folks definitely like standardized data sets that they can kind of use the word hill climb, show improvement of their algorithms and their techniques. And again, these challenges like VizWiz, this is a great way to raise kind of, you know, awareness that this is an important task. There's a scoreboard that, you know, people can now publish papers and say, you know, I've improved the scoreboard and they can feel like they're making progress on a task because, you know, this has been carefully curated to say, if you do a good job solving this task, it's going to actually help people in the real world. And, you know, I, I really like that. Maybe to give maybe a slightly different context as well is, you know, we've found things like in the ImageNet challenge to be very useful to have progress over time. You know, I've, that's kind of like the standard lab experiment, I guess. And, you know, that's really catalyzed the community. Uh, we've also run some challenges around kind of low power, and that's been really helpful to get kind of a community together around that topic and making progress. And, um, yeah, I guess maybe that's, that's some thoughts on, on that area, but definitely super important. Um, North Star community driven, you know, those are the themes basically. Daniel, any thoughts on, on data set building? I don't really have thoughts about the way data are collected or the kind of data that are needed to, to make effective decisions other than that data do need to be co collected. It's hard to make assumptions. And I think we need data from blind uh, users or blind consumers. I also think we need data from people who are blind, but by virtue of their profession or expertise or, or just maybe experience, uh, can offer some, I'll, I'll just call them educated guesses. Uh, so I, I won't speak for other blind people, but I have worked with literally thousands of blind people in almost every imaginable context, almost every imaginable environment. And so I feel like I could propose, for example, if someone asked me, what are the, what are the most pertinent issues that blind people face when navigating their environment? You know, with, with a question mark, I feel like I can put that out there. And I think we need blind people to put that out there. I think we need to codify uh, what those issues are, because the the data have largely been quite um, site dominated, if you will, due to a long, long, long held um, site dominance in uh, fields of instructing blind people. And I think that we need to to turn that over to blind people. Oh, super interesting. So you're you're also suggesting, at least from a point of view of of data and the kinds of data that we need to acquire, et cetera, that that also should be perhaps driven by blind people or at least the the inquiries that they're they're going to be pushing. Is that accurate? 
Yeah. 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 Super interesting. Will. Yeah. Well, I mean, Daniel's, you can't, you can't say what underscore enough what Daniel's point is, which is that if you're not integrating blind testers and designers into your development process, you're, you're doing something wrong. You're, and you're missing out on a lot of really valuable insight and, and, and potential innovation. So that's huge. Um, and I think when it comes to um, actually procuring the, the right, a good data set and ensuring, ensuring you're, you're doing everything correctly, and you have to understand that there's just a tremendous amount of personal data and, and, and sensitive data that goes into visual interpretation with people. So slicing it between social, symbolic, physical, um, it's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, and, and people are sharing, well, people are encountering barriers with all sorts of sensitive things such as credit cards and pregnancy tests and COVID tests. And um, I mean, you know, this is so, so you have to take that part of, of ethically and anonymously treating the data really, really seriously. And then, and then there's other things to consider, like, well, how do we filter out commercial data? Um, in so, so many cases where people need uh, visual interpretation, there's a brand behind it on the other side of the camera who is designing a barrier. So it's one thing to solve the barrier for the, the blind individual, but then there's another task of making sure that that data gets somehow back to the brand so that they can fix the the issue and and at its source rather than rather than simply solving it with uh, on device um, with it with a with a sort of a band-aid interpreter service. So uh, I mean it's it's a it's a deep deep topic and it's something we're thinking about a lot at, at Be My Eyes and um, having been a European you know kind of uh, core to our company we've. We've always, since day one, been been highly attuned to GDPR and really the highest standards of privacy, and um, that's the mindset that we go into everything with, when it, whether it's research and development or um, testing or or anything. So, yeah, it's a it's a big topic. It really is. Um, thank you. I, I, you know, I I almost want to dig a little bit deeper on this just because of the, all the questions around both the ethics of withholding information, but also like the ethics of like sharing. So you've got both. And, and I think there are really deep questions about like, well, if we withhold all of the personal information that we have, that, that we may need to withhold for lots of good privacy reasons, we're also limiting the kinds of models we can build that are actually important, that are deeply personal to people. And I think it's it's a super interesting question, but we're running out of time. So I want to make sure that we hit our final question here. Um, and I think this one is really important because it's fundamentally about this much bigger village that we're building and, this, and the, the fact that the problems that we're trying to solve here are really multidisciplinary problems. They, they really can't uh, be solved by just technologists or just a, a, the blind community or just um, another a random company. So for a final question, I want to start with Daniel. And I want to say, can you share about what extent you've had conversations with or collaborate 
with researchers, industry developers, blind technology advocates to advance products and services that can advance visual assistance products and services. And in particular, what do you find works well versus what doesn't work well in these kinds of collaborations or conversations? So we'll start with Daniel. Well, loads. So um, I, I became an orientation and mobility specialist about 22 years ago. No, longer, 25 years ago. And I uh, felt, I mean, my background is as a developmental psychologist. So I have a master's in developmental psychology as well as a master's in special education. I drew probably more on my psychology than my education training uh, and, and discovered very quickly that the field of orientation and mobility really doesn't have the answers, at least it doesn't have most of the answers. And <clears throat> if, if you want an answer to navigation and environmental interaction, to freedom of movement uh, into and through the environment, um, it needs to be an interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary um, effort or approach or network or whatever. So the mobility field is is very siloed in its own thing. And I then went out and have uh, consulted with psychologists, neurologists, auditory experts, occupational science people, uh, and uh, people who, who look at uh, ergonomics and parapersonal space and things like that. There's a whole science around, for example, uh, what makes a device become a natural extension of a person's perceptual system, whether it's a golf club or a ski pole or running shoes or whatever. But somehow this very same science hasn't been applied to the white cane, at least not, you know, not broadly speaking. So um, I don't want to dominate the, the response here, but I think, I think that's basically it. I think that a an intersection of tangential disciplines is absolutely needed to approach solutions. Fantastic, thanks. Thank you, Will. I think from BMI's perspective, we mostly have worked with industry up to this point. Um, we have great partnerships with Google and Microsoft and many other companies, Spotify, other technology companies. But, but that's largely been to sort of manually um, help them gain insight into how their products are working for, for users. And, and that mostly is a relationship between the companies and the users. We don't really, we're more of a switchboard in that respect for connecting the community with those companies. I think where we can expand is on the academic front. Uh, I think we are, we're actively trying to figure out how we can leverage the activity in our community and the passion that all of our users have for accessibility to get researchers um, involved and get researchers good data on what the blind community's needs and wants are. Um, we're working on that. We've kind of just started on that, but but I, I, we've already seen some really promising potential there. And I'm also really open to the idea that, you know, empowered to do so, our community of users would actively participate in this process and contribute their a little bit, you know, uh, micro amounts of time and th and energy um, when they have it to sort of help us guide this uh, sort of heat map, as it were, of what are the 
what are the tasks that need to be solved for the blind community. So I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, there's a lot of great research and development to be done from within our community in the years to come. And uh, I would really invite anyone who's watching uh, to reach out to us at Be My Eyes and and start a conversation because I think that's we're we're very very open to that and uh, and very committed to the to the cause that we've been talking about today. Thanks so much. We'll close with Andrew. What do you think? Uh, yeah, maybe a couple quick details. Um, in terms of my uh, direct collaboration uh, with this community, you know, I've worked some with the folks uh, at Project Guideline as well as the folks at uh, our, our Lookout app. Uh, but that's been more about like an enabler with technology rather than and they would more directly, the engineers there would work on the problems and, you know, they would have their own uh, kind of relationships and interactions with the community. Uh, when I think about how to bring communities together, there's kind of a, maybe three broad communities we're maybe talking about here. We're talking about specifically the kind of uh, blind community we can call maybe users if you like then we have the research community these are people who are kind of publishing and trying to move things forward and then you have kind of maybe the tech companies and there's overlap in all three of these groups but each all three really kind of need to kind of come together because the research community can kind of solve the problem over time and then the kind of tech companies, whether startup or large tech companies can then put the technology out there based on the research. But then how do we kind of drive that whole pipeline? Because again, it is a bit of a cycle. Pipeline can be driven by creating the canonical tasks and measurements of success uh, by the community and get that embedded within kind of academia and then uh, really enable kind of, uh, you know, the best and brightest, hopefully, to go and uh, solve the problems. You can also think about potentially driving standards like, you know, here are examples of uh, problems we want to solve uh, and create kind of an industry standard around this where then, you know, the technology can say, you know, this app is this good at solving this standard task. Uh, that's maybe another way to like harness things. Uh, and that's one way that multiple tech companies can kind of come together uh, with, with the community and kind of agree upon what are the standards of success. That's fantastic. We are at time, unfortunately, because I would love to continue this conversation for a lot longer. But uh, first off, I just want to say this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, and I really enjoyed hearing all of your perspectives on this. Thank you so much for sharing your valuable time for today's conversation. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you.